Welcome to the Rock Community Church. Pastor John Warehouse is teaching from the book of Acts. Enjoy today's sermon. Thank you so much. Danny, everybody, thank you so much. Welcome. Welcome to the Rock Community Church. We'll not be able to say this again. This is the first service. Okay, it's at 10 o'clock hour because we have had one at uh, last night at, uh, at 6 and then this morning at 8.15. But this is our first 10 o'clock service, and this is uh, the joy of our lives. Look around and see how God has so blessed us. I don't know that this is going to be such an accurate count, because I recognize some of you that were here last night and in the first service, so thanks for being here. This is what I told you a little while ago. This is what a lady gave me. This is my toothbrush. I'm going to hang that, or... Not maybe hang it, but I'm going to put it somewhere that I'll be reminded of a date and the kindness of uh, of you, the people here, this church. Um, let me let me let me before I, I do anything else, I do want to say something. Um, a fellow that uh, and his wife who did so much for our church here, Jeff Allward, is um, in the hospital, and um, you know, he's just not doing right, really well right now. But I believe he's going to be fine real soon. Carla, where are you? Carla, we love you so much. We will be praying for you and Jeff. Um, if there's anything that we can do, anything you need, please let us know. Um, we love you. We love your husband, Jeff, so much. Jeff, we love you so much. You get well now, and we'll be praying for you. In fact, let's open up with a prayer for, for him. Father, we pray for Jeff, that you would um, put your healing hand upon the tumor that's in his head and just the things that are troubling him, Father, and would you give the doctors wisdom, uh, knowledge of what to do beyond their own uh, understanding even? And Father, if it would be your will, uh, we would really pray that you would personally touch him yourself, that you would take away that tumor, whatever is troubling him. If not, dear Father, we trust him to you. We know that you love him far greater than we do. Watch over Carla. Watch over Jeff. Thank you for the two of them, Father. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Jeff is the gentleman that we prayed for his uh, granddaughter, um, Lillian, that, uh, that was born with a, a cancer and uh, for a year um, just, you know, couldn't be exposed to anything or anyone. You know, it was just one of those things. But the, the Lord saw her through all of that, and she's uh, absolutely fine right now. In fact, is she in church even right now? No, but uh, she's doing so much better. Um, I got an email this week from a, an old ball player friend of mine named Jeff Zahn. Jeff is in Michigan, and um, he writes me emails from time to time. I communicate with a lot of my friends across the country that way. It's really fun, and I get to stay in touch with some. And he didn't know that we were we had this the opportunity to move into this building. He knew that we had a church, and he knew that, in fact, he had visited here to California and, and worshipped with us. But uh, he didn't know what was going on, and he sent me an email that I called him immediately and I asked him, number one, I told him the good news of what is going on here and then I asked him, I said, Jeff, in that email you sent me, may I read to our congregation this quote that was in this email? And he said, of course you can, uh, but I just thought I would ask him because it, to me, it kind of encapsulated what this moment is about in, in our life as a church. I'm so sorry. You guys have to sit over on the side. I do love it though. I love being kind of in and around, but let's face it, you get to see 
Ghost. It's got to be the pits, doesn't it? I mean, it blocks out. If we had anything hanging over on that wall, <laughs> you guys wouldn't be able to see it, man. It would put this nose. Same thing with you. I know that it's not the best, but I, I love having kind of people close and around like this. So, anyways, as I was thinking about this whole time of this week, Today is the very first day of our being in our own church. We can literally hang our toothbrushes here. This is the place that we're going to ask um, the Lord to do may, many great and wonderful things in it. It's a day that hopefully will live with each of us and our families forever. What we promise to you is what I think you'd want to do and what you would say if you, you had the privilege of being up here as I do right now. And that is, we promise that we will have a single purpose in opening the doors to this church. And that is to honor Jesus Christ in every day and in every way that we can. And we will honor Him by preaching the Word of God to every single soul that enters into this place. We will not take it for granted that they know Him. Thanks. God bless you. We will not take it for granted to anyone that might know Him. We will just preach the Gospel so that maybe they can come to know our Lord. Or if not, then they they can grow in the knowledge of Him. And when I read this in in Jeff's email, I, I thought, wow, this is kind of what I feel. It says this, Life is not measured by the number of breaths that we take says, life is measured by the moments that take our breath away. And it is my contention, it is my deepest belief, and hopefully yours, that God has just literally taken our breath away by giving us this sanctuary. As I said to you when we first began, before the music started, I believe that God did this in such a fashion that none of us can take credit for it. And let me tell you, there are, there are so many people that did so much one lady, her husband and she donated all the furniture in the children's department. I don't, I wasn't here to, you know, you know, the, did I say this to you already? You know the picture on the, the, the website of me pushing those chairs? That's the only work I did. That was it. I thought you'd laugh. That's all I did. So many people did so much. I heard that she was here, she worked 17 hours straight, cleaning the rooms, doing things, just working, serving the Lord in that fashion. There are so many that hopefully in the, the days and the weeks to come, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let you know of these people. Um, as I think I mentioned to you already, forgive me, this is without notes, I, I, I sometimes the services do blend together. But uh, I think I did mention the, the, the family that gave so much money that we were able to open our doors. We, we wouldn't have been able to. There was, when we first began, some a little over two years ago, there was a friend of mine who will come here, and, and I'll introduce you to him. His name is Rudy Mark Miller, his wife Inga. He wrote me a, a check saying, um, I want to see you start your church. Get it going. He wrote us a check for $100,000. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, it's tough being your friend. And 
I didn't know what he meant because I didn't. Well, I did ask him. I'm. I will. I did ask him to help us get started, and uh, he did. It's been people in, in events like that that have just been a part of this place that uh, there's no words to express how kind you all have been. Some of you might say, well, I haven't done that much. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter how much you did is that you did something, prayed, whatever, that we can gather together. Well, I, I told the staff, you know, I'm, I don't know that I'm going to be able to give a clever uh, message on uh, church buildings or something, you know. So basically what I think I'll do is just get back in the book of Acts and just pretend like we've been here all along. Thanks for nodding. Because the, the staff said to me, that's why the people come. Don't get clever now. And that's the truth. So would you open your Bibles with me? <laughs> would you open your Bibles with me? And would you turn to me to Acts, with me to Acts chapter 2? I mentioned to you last week that we will be in these four verses for these two weeks. And here we are again. And then we'll move on. Make note, as you probably already do know, that Peter is starting the church. Just as we are in a building, so Peter is starting the church there on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching a message. And a message true to its form convicts. That's what a message is to do. A message is to give you comfort, maybe. It's to convict, for sure. It's to help you to conform, all of those things. A message does what only God can do in your heart. That's why I always pray, Lord, move me out of the way. Because, see, I can't do that. I can't presume or be presumptuous enough to think that I can move your, your soul. I don't believe that. I believe that's the Lord's job. In fact, it, it's part of the message today. You'll see that's what He does. And so um, I try to get out of the way so that we can see what is being done. And so as Peter preaches this message, he obviously convicted them of sin. He, what he did was, you recognize who he is speaking to. He is speaking to a, a predominantly Jewish audience. And he's telling them that they, along with ungodly people, meaning Gentiles, all had a hand in killing the Messiah. They, after listening to Peter, were beside themselves. And they asked the question of questions as we addressed last week. They asked in verse 37, then what shall we do? What can we do about it? If, if that has happened, how can we be forgiven? What can we do? There were three times that, that that statement was made within the book of Acts itself. In Acts chapter 16, as I'll, we'll turn to it later, the jailer, when he came upon Paul and Silas and, and they hadn't left and he, said, he was ready to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do that, we're still here. And he said to them, sir, what shall I do to be saved? Paul himself asked that question when he was on the road to Damascus. When Jesus Christ knocked him off of the donkey and he was blinded, he looked up and, and, and the, the statement that he made is, what shall I do? And so that's what these people ask. 
because they had been convicted of sin. And that's what a message will do. Verse 37 to verse 41. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God shall call to Himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received His word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people came to Christ. And with that group of people, the church was, was, was initiated. But what was, what was so important to this place in Scripture and so important for us as a body of believers, a church, is that question hopefully will come to all of our hearts at one time or another. What shall I do? What, what must I do? Some of us already are, most of us already are saved. But the question might be, what, what shall I do? If, if you convict my heart to serve, if you convict my heart to do something, what shall I do? And the church's job is to be straightforward in its answer so that you're not misled on what you should do with your lives. And so as we're going to see, Peter makes a straightforward answer to their wonderful question. And with that, the church began. Now let's pray and let's ask the Lord to open up our eyes. Dear Father, please do that. Open our eyes that we might behold the most wonderful of privileges that is known to mankind. And that is the glory, the magnificence of your word. Would you reveal yourself through your word to us today? Father, that's why I ask, as you well know, hide the one that gives the message. Father, let me be not seen so much. But rather, Father, let us, let us sense that your heart is speaking to our hearts. If you wish to use me, Father, in that capacity to pass that along, I would be honored. But basically, Father, what we want here is to hear from you so that you would move our hearts, that we might become a people that know and love you so much. And so as Peter answers this very critical question, what must we do to be saved? He answers it straightforward. Father, may we make complete sense of it so that we understand it completely, so that there's no mistaking about what needs to be done to be a, a child of yours. And so, Lord, we give you thanks and praise you for who you are, for this place that you've so gloriously given us. May we honor you in it. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, make no mistake about it. This question, what shall we do to be saved, is critical. It's critical to the formation of a church because it's an eternal question with Great ramifications. See, no matter how sincere you may be, no matter how sincere the person is that is answering the question to you, no matter how sincere we may be, 
To misunderstand or to misinterpret this question could take someone down a path to damnation or could lead us to a path of eternal life with the Savior. And so you see, the answer that Peter gave is critical. It's it's critical to the founding of the church. It's critical to the founding of Christianity. It's critical to your belief. And so without wavering, in verses 38 and 39, Peter answers this critical question. He says, repent. Now, we talked about that last week. In the Greek, it is M-E-T-A-N-O-E-S-A-T-E. It means to change your heart. It means to change the direction in which you are going. You see, you must remember, the audience that Peter was speaking to were predominantly Jews, and so... They had rejected the Messiah. He says, I want you to change your heart. You need now to embrace Him. And so he says, I want you to repent and I want you to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, a problem came about concerning that particular verse. The command, let each of you be baptized, some started to say, well, you must be baptized so as to be saved. But what, is, what, what does the Word of God say about that? There's a teaching, in other words, teaching baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, teaching baptism for salvation violates a very important hermeneutical principle. I got through it. Three services. I got to say that word, hermeneutical. It's known as in the Greek... Analogica, or, or maybe, maybe it's, uh, never mind. It's known in a, in a, a different language, analogia scriptura. Now that I blew. But it basically means in English, the analogy of scripture. What it means is that no passage is going to teach anything that will be contrary to the rest of scripture. That is why, folks, for a church to open its doors and to to teach through the Bible haphazardly, to not, to not teach through the Bible so that we can follow it and, 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 and have structure to what we are learning within church is a terrible mistake because you can go to, say, this verse, verse 38, and then make the, the case that you must be, you must repent, but you also must be baptized so you are saved. But the rest of Scripture unmistakably teaches that salvation is based solely upon faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Him alone. And I want to make sure that we as a church understand that's our criteria. Our criteria isn't a bunch of agendas and a bunch of programs. Your faith with God, your eternal destiny lays in the fact that you have repented and you believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin. And I want to prove this to you. I want to prove it to you by looking at Scripture. Look at John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Hold your place here. We're going to look at a couple places in John and some other places. And then up on the screen, there's like a... a, 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 a a cluster of verses from John 1.12 back to Philippians 3.9 that talk about faith is, in, in, faith is in, in trusting in Christ and He alone. But so that you and I get the idea of what is being taught, let's take a look at, 
at John chapter 1, verse 11. It says that He came into His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. That's talking about what Peter was, was talking about in the first sermon that he preached. Those who were a part of, the, of, the, of, the, the, of Israel, of Israelites, they, they did not receive Him as their Messiah. But it says in verse 12, and that's the key verse, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in His name. As you'll note, there isn't a statement about baptism there. Look at John, well, famous verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, there is no mention of baptism. Look at Acts chapter 2 where we are. But look at verse 21. It's a powerful verse. It says, And it shall be that everyone... Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Forgive me, I might be going a little quick. I'm sorry. Acts chapter 2, verse 21. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, let's take a look at Acts chapter 16. I talked a little bit about it previously. In Acts chapter 16, one of the places that the question arose, what shall I do to be saved, is here. In Acts chapter 16, it says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing. Now they're in chains and they're in prison. And yet they're they're just singing hymns and they're praising God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, it says in verse 26, there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house was shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer had been aroused out of his sleep and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. When we get to this place in Scripture, you're going to see why he did that. I'll tell you a little bit about it right now. They were there being held so that they would be executed. They were going to be killed, Paul and Silas. A a jailer knew that if anyone that he was watching over escaped, the, the penalty that was to fall upon those that left was to fall upon him. So he knew if they're gone... He's toast. He's dead. So he was going to kill himself instead. At that moment, Paul cries out to him. Look at verse 28. With a loud voice saying, Don't do yourself any harm. We're all still here. And then it says in verse 29, The prisoner called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said to them, verse 30, Sir... What must I do to be saved? You see, his heart got touched just like anyone else's that were listening to what these guys had to say and watching their reaction about being in prison and seeing the light that flowed from these guys. He knew that there was something unique about them. So he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And they said in verse 31, here's what they say, you believe, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. As you note, there's no mention of baptism. Probably in the most famous of places about being salvation through Christ and Christ alone is in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. You don't need to turn there. It's a very short little verse. Paul said this, 
Jesus Christ did not send me to baptize. He said, Jesus Christ sent me to preach the gospel. Folks, let me, let, me, let me tell you what I think you already surmised from that statement. You don't need to be a scholar, you don't need to be a theologian to realize that if baptism was necessary for your salvation, Paul would have never made that statement. He would have never said, I've not been here to baptize. In other words, I'm not here to save anybody. No, his whole life was there to save people. He wouldn't have said those words, nor could he. Back to Acts chapter 2. Because of our repenting, we then, says, the Bible says, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. That is the joy, that is the privilege that you and I have. Once we accept Jesus Christ and He and He alone, our sins have been wiped clean. We are forgiven. The Bible goes on to say, not only are you forgiven of the sins that you did, the Bible says you are forgiven of the sins that you might be doing. The Bible says you are forgiven of sins that you will do. You are forgiven. Jesus Christ has died for all of your sins. There are three different verses in, uh, up there on the wall, and, and you don't need to turn to them because I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. Colossians, Romans, and Jeremiah. If you have a tendency to want to study these verses, please write them down and study them on your own. But listen, Colossians says this, 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, God, made you alive together with Him, meaning Jesus Christ, having forgiven you all of your transgressions. Forgiven you all of your sins. Romans 4, 7 says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, Thus declares the Lord, I will forgive your iniquity and your sin I will remember no more. That's one of the joys of being a believer. Not that we can sin and get away with it, but that our sin has been covered. Through repentance, salvation would not only bring us the forgiveness of our sins, but we would also receive, if you turn back to Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's take ourselves back to the time of the day of Pentecost. That is exactly what the people of, of the nation of Israel were waiting for. They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They longed for the Messiah to come because He would then set up His kingdom. And that is exactly what Joel chapter 2 says. Now, Joel chapter 2, you, don't, you and I, we don't have to turn back to the Old Testament because Peter quotes Joel verbatim in Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 16. You see, what the people were waiting for was a time that Joel called the end times or the last days or in those days. Those last days, those end times would usher in the coming Messiah. What they didn't know, what we know today, is the ushering in of the Messiah brought in to us what is called the church age. We are living in the last days. These are the last days. We don't know how long it will be because... Our Lord says that you don't know. He didn't even know. Only the Father knows. And we are living in this time 
for when He came to die for our sins and when He's going to come back again. This is called the church age. In these days, from everyone that comes to Christ, we are received a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, they understood what He was saying. Peter mentioned in his sermon, look at Acts chapter 2, look at verse 16 again. Remind yourself, this is what Peter says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. He says, and it shall be in the last days. The moment they said in the last days, that was a trigger in the hearts and the minds of every Jewish person there. That means the coming of the Messiah. In the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind. On your sons and your daughters, they'll prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even, he says, on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will. In those days, in other words, the day of the coming of the Messiah, I will pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. These are the last days. And these are the days that the Lord God has gifted every single one of us who have ever accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He has given to the church through forgiveness, through repentance, He has given us, every individual believer, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word gift is important. It's important to understand what it means when you and I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word gift in Greek is D-O-R-E-A. It refers to that that you receive that is free. You don't have to pay for it. There's nothing you can do about it. For by grace you have been saved through grace, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, so that none of us should boast. It is a free gift. But that word, D-O-R-E-A, also means it is unmerited. In other words, you don't have to earn it. You don't really deserve it. You receive it. And you are given this gift for one purpose and one purpose only. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ. And we have seen it, oh my goodness, have we seen it in the whole process of getting this place ready. Time will show you some of the people, hopefully all of the people, that spent time and energy here to to make this place work. There's a man that is in our congregation. He's in construction. He took, o- took over the construction of this place. He, he you know, he, he basically, not single-handedly, but I'm going to say single-handedly, made it work. There's a gentleman in our congregation that, that came here for 18 years. 18 years, folks. He, he stopped serving the Lord because he had his, a situation happen in his life that he doesn't mention, I don't want to know. He asked me if I would go to lunch with him. He wanted to know, what are you, what are you really like? Are you like what you're up here? Or what do you like? And I went to lunch with him with Wes Brown. and He said, you know, you've been challenging people to get served. And he said, you know, I stopped serving the Lord. And he says, I think I don't want to start serving again. When we had the dedication of this place, it, he came forward with his wife, Dennis Briley. Without him, we wouldn't be in this place. He had his hand upon every, everything. His expertise is doing what he did of, of taking control of, of, of doing a building like this. That's just a couple of names. I'm going to, over time, try to bring out more people that you can see 
But every single one of us had a part. And God has gifted you and me to do a part, to, to, to build up the body of Christ. That's the reason we live. That's the reason we draw breath. So that we can serve the body of Christ. And this gift that you receive from that one simple magnificent word, gift, Peter attached no condition. The only condition that was attached to it was repentance and having faith and faith in Jesus Christ alone. It should be noted that the gift of the Spirit doesn't come through water baptism. Just another, let's take a look again. Look at Acts chapter 10. Just to kind of confirm, hold your place here in in chapter 2 and turn ahead to chapter 10 again. Or once now. Look at chapter 10 and starting in verse 42. Peter is saying, He, meaning Jesus Christ, ordered us to preach. Remember I told you over and over again, it says they were given orders of what to do. And those orders have fallen upon whom? Us. Same orders. He says, and we were ordered to preach to the people. And we were solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living of the dead. Speaking, of course, of Jesus. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Again, you don't see any mention of baptism. But it says, though, in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised, circumcised mean all of the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, they were amazed. Because, it says, the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles as well. And they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God when Peter answered. As you can see from that place in Scripture, the Holy Spirit had fallen upon these guys listening to Peter. So then Peter says... Surely, verse 47, no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can they? In other words, they had already received the gift of the Holy Spirit. What Peter says, since they received it, we need to identify them with us as well. And the way that they identified each other was through baptism. Baptism was the natural way of saying what is happen within me, I go through this ritual to proclaim what is within me, that I have accepted the Lord. It's an outward expression of what has taken place within one's heart. And in those days, to be baptized meant that it was a public identification. And for a Jew to publicly identify with Christ, it meant, as we learned last week, they were neither Jew anymore because they were to be kicked out of the synagogue, but they were not Gentiles. And so they were in this no man's land. It was a very intimidating place for them to be. But now on top of that, they, Peter says, I want us as Jews to identify with the Gentiles. And if you know anything about the history of the Jews, they had nothing to do with the Gentiles. They would do nothing with the Gentiles. It was water and oil that didn't mix. And Peter all of a sudden is saying, look, the same Spirit has fallen upon them. What's stopping them to be baptized just like we were? What's stopping them to be identified with us and us with them? And that's what the church is supposed to be. 
It goes across all the culture of people. It goes across all type of race and religion. And it's supposed to be a melting pot of all of us together loving the Lord and loving one another. And so this marvelous gift of the Holy Spirit came upon all who believed. But it was not... Turn back to Acts chapter 2. But it was not merely just for the Jews. It was not merely for just the audience that was there. In verse 39... Peter makes a, a, an amazing statement. He says, the promise is for you. The promise is the gift of the Holy Spirit. When he says it's for you, remember his audience, predominantly Jewish people. He said, the promise is for you. And if you'll note in verse 39, also it's for your children. But it is also for those who are far off. You see that in verse 39? For those who are far off. He says, as many... As the Lord our God shall call to Himself, this promise is for them as well. And so we can see clearly the promise for you and your children were for the Jewish listeners. But when, when Peter mentions that the promise is also for those who are far off, we need to understand who that is. And so please turn with me. This is the last place you'll have to turn in, in the Scriptures. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is to the, to the right, of course. You'll go past... Um, uh, Romans and 1st, 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Should the Lord tarry and should He allow me to live long enough, I would love to teach through the book of Ephesians. It's a great, great book. And in this place in, in chapter 2, he says in verse, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, verse 9, so that no one should boast. Because it says in verse 10, we're His workmanship. You and I, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God has prepared beforehand. This place God has prepared for us beforehand so that we should walk in these, these blessings that God pours out upon our lives. Now, here's what I wanted you to see. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember this. That formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Circumcision means by the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. In other words, that's nothing to do with God. Remember, he says, you were at that time, note, separated from Christ. Now, he's talking about the Gentiles. You were separated from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You have no hope. You are with God, without God in this world. Note verse 13. Two great words. But now. But now are phenomenal words. But now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were what? Far off. You who were the Gentiles, who were far off, you now have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter's description of those who would receive the Spirit as those whom the Lord our God as we note, I told you I wasn't going to go back there, but in, 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 I'm sorry, I am. Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Have been called to, to God. We've been called to Himself. It describes God's sovereignty at work through and in salvation. In other words, it's not a gift. It's not a promise just for the Jews. As Joel said, it is a promise for Jew and Gentile alike. It is a promise that we all have, this gift of the Holy Spirit. And what it 
what verse 39 does is it, it, it calls upon those who come to Christ that He calls them to Himself. It describes God's sovereignty at work within your life and my life. There is also an argument in, by, among theologians of whether you or you or you or me, we, whether we had any part in our salvation. There are those that you might or might not know who say that you have no part in it. God calls you and that's it. He predestined who is going to come to Christ. The Bible says that He called us to Himself. We are taught in the book of Ephesians we were dead. Dead means dead. Clinically dead. In our transgressions and in our sins. But Christ made us alive. And so there are those that teach that you and I have no part and parcel in salvation. But verse 39 gives balance to verse 21. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Please forgive me that I told you I was going to stop there. I, I, uh, I misread my pages. In verse 21 it says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What I want you to know as a church... The biblical view of salvation does not exclude either our human responsibility or God's divine sovereignty. They work together. I don't know how, but no one can explain it. But the Bible teaches if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That's your responsibility. My responsibility, our responsibility is as human beings to call upon the name of the Lord. Maybe we will be saved. That's our human responsibility. But the Bible also teaches that God's divine sovereignty is that He calls us to Himself. And so verses 21 and 39 in Peter's message allows both of those theological, uh, um, I don't know, Dr. McGee agrees totally with what I'm saying to you right now. So do many wonderful teachers. They both remain in tension with one another. Both of them at work. And so you just don't lean back and say, well, if I'm saved, I'm saved. That's God's problem, not mine. No, you have a responsibility humanly to come to Christ. I'll say this about that whole theory, though. The older I get in the Lord, the older I get, the more I realize I had very little to do with it. I just accepted the Lord. But I believe it was my part to accept Him. His part was to, to move me to accept Him. And so as Peter says, as we conclude this place in Scripture... He says, I want you to be saved from this perverse generation. And so I say the same thing to us and to you and to me. One of my habits as, uh, as I prepare for messages is I listen to talk radio. I love it. Uh, I, I get very angry with it because uh, I listen to programs that I don't particularly agree with um, because I want to hear all sides. There is one particular person I listen to that I won't even tell you his name. I won't tell you the program. It's a... I tell you, he's a despicable human being, in my opinion. In my opinion, he probably wouldn't like me a lot either. But, um, in fact, I know he wouldn't, because I'm a Christian. And he hates Christians. He hates God. He hates everything about uh, uh, anything that is moral. He says, we should just live, you know. We, have, uh, we know what's good and right. And this, I can't tell you all about him. All I can tell you is I listen to this stuff and I... I realize what a perverse generation we live in. And for those of us who are older here in this room, in this church, we have a tremendous responsibility to the young people. I consider your children to be mine. Whether you want me to or not, I do. 
I love them so much. I love your kids. If you ever notice when I talk to your kids, I'll always bend down and get on my knees. As much as it hurts me to do it anymore, I'll get down on my knees and I'll try to look them right in the eye and tell them I love them and thank them for coming to church you know, and talk to them. And, and by the way, when I do that, please, as parents, don't, if, if I say I love them and they don't say they love me back, don't, don't pull on their arms and say, tell them you love them. They will in time. Let them, let, them, let them go. You'll see in time they'll come running to me and give me a hug. In time. But I want to love your kids. And what I want to do is to be an example as a church that can save our children from this perverse generation in which we live. It's tough out there. There's a lot of things out there that are, are being told and forced fed upon us as a society that's just wrong. And so I would love for us to be a place that saves people from this perverse generation in which we do live. And it is. And so I'd love for you to close with me in prayer. Dear Father, Father, I pray that this church that you have so graciously given to us, that it will be for us for our children and for those who are far off. Those days were those who were separated. They were excluded. They were strangers. They had no hope. They were without God. May we be a church that is, is friendly to those who are far off and don't know you. That we will be a place that will offer salvation from this perverse generation in which we all live. 